Well, good morning again. So I'm sure you've heard this phrase. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about what it means and what it feels like when somebody says it to you. We are in a relationship. Right? What, what does that mean when you hear somebody say, we are in a relationship? Well, typically, it means one person is saying of another person, we are in a committed, long-term arrangement with one another. Usually, usually, uh, it's, it's used uh, in, in a romantic context. We are in a relationship. That's usually what people mean. You know, it can also, it's not just worth knowing what it means. It's, when you think about it, if you ever heard someone say that of you or to you, it can be rather exhilarating, rather exciting, rather encouraging. You know, like you're listening and somebody says this of you and them to another party. We are in a relationship, or perhaps they say it directly to you, you know, in whatever way. We are in a relationship. It could really be of something of a charge, again, exhilarating, exciting, encouraging, affirming, all of that. What if you heard God say that to you? We are in a relationship. What if you heard God say that of you, to you? We are in a relationship. What would that mean? What would that mean? What would it mean? What would it entail? What would be the implications of, of that? For him to say that to you and I this morning. We are pressing on in our series in the book of Judges. And uh, if you want to turn there now in your Bibles, uh, this is uh, after what's referred to as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you hit... Joshua, then you hit Judges in terms of the historical flow. Yes, Joshua comes right before Judges, not just in terms of the canon. We're in Judges chapter 10. Uh, just to kind of remind you, historical background, where are we in terms of the flow of history? Uh, this is the time in between the Exodus, God's bringing his people up out of Egypt. This is the time between the Exodus and the monarchy, the time of the kings. They're in Israel. You know, put it another way, this is the time between Moses and David. This is the time uh, of, of the settlement, um, of the conquest of the land, of the establishment, of the grounding, the founding of the nation of Israel. That's where we are. And it was a messy time, a really messy time indeed. Josh, uh, sorry, Judges, Judges chapter 10 verses 1 through 18. That's our text for this morning. Judges chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hear now God's word. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. 
And Jair died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that the people were severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Can we pray? Lord, even while we... Perhaps many of us, even as we hear these words, don't really feel, don't really see how it could be immediately applicable, relevant to us. We know if it's found, if it's found here within the pages of your word, it has to be. It has to be relevant. It has to be applicable. There has to be something here that tells us yet more about who you are more about us, more about our need of you, more about what it means to follow you, what it means to be yours. Would you please help us to see? Would you give us a, a holy curiosity, yet also a holy discontentment with ourselves and this world around us as we explore this passage and as it explores us? Thank you for these few minutes. Thank you for the, the songs that we have been able to sing, the time in prayer and reading the scriptures already that we've been able to have. That would have been worth doing. That would have been worth coming out for already. And we thank you for the, just these few minutes to look at Judges 10. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you please move within us? Amen. So I was having a conversation this past week with a, a pastor friend of mine, and the topic was, among many other things, premarital counseling. Uh, he was doing some with, with a couple, and just kind of we were talking about that a little bit. And just in the broader 
idea of premarital counseling, what all that is and what it's for. It's, 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 it's needed. It really is quite needed uh, before you take that, that plunge. Uh, usually, it's helpful, uh, depending on the posture of the couple as they're coming into premarital counseling. As far as topics that are worth covering in, in that, in those sessions, you know, you have such things as, as money and sex and in-laws and communication and family history and roles and all, all such things, all such things worth, worth talking about, exploring, unpacking, hearing what one another's uh, thinking about that, what the scriptures have to say about all of that. There's something else that's worth exploring uh, in premarital counseling and, and worth never really getting away from as long as you're married, and that is the very nature of the relationship itself. What is it? What, it, what governs it? It's not a contract. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. Contract being you do your part, I'll do my part, hope it works out 50-50, right? No, that's not the way this relationship is intended to work. It's a covenant, uh, meaning it is uh, permanent no matter what, meaning it is um, uh, exclusive, meaning that it is exhaustive. Now, that's not meant to say it's tiring and it'll wear you out, but rather it covers everything. All of life is covered in, in that, permanent. Uh, exclusive, exhaustive. Well, what's interesting, and some of you may know this, uh, the marriage relationship between husband and wife is meant to be a picture, it's meant to be a signpost pointing to what the relationship between God and His people is, is like. We're supposed to see something of what that is by what we see down, down here. Uh, the relationship between God and His people is permanent, it is exclusive, it is exhaustive. There are a lot of parallels, all likenesses, similarities there. That said, there are some differences too, because we're not talking about you know bond between two mortal human beings now. Now we're talking about the infinite, eternal God and us. So of course, there've got to be some some differences, and among those differences, certainly has to be that relationship between us and Him is all of His initiative, completely His, completely His initiative. It is, um, there, there's no sharing in that. He sets the tone. He sets the parameters. All the dynamics are according to what he says it's, it's going to be. And the extent to which we live outside of that, we're going to do harm to ourselves. Which brings us to judges. Like, where are we going to talk about judges? Okay. Brings us to Judges, and a theme that we see all through Scripture, all through Judges, and here in Judges 10. Um, God calls us into relationship with Himself. And again, He sets the tone, He determines the parameters, the dynamics, all of that within this relationship. He takes the initiative. He calls us into relationship with Himself. Now, what does that demand? Our turning to Him, our turning from our sin, and our turning to Him. He calls us into relationship with Himself. What does it demand? What does it entail? He, with that, it has to mean at least our turning to Him, our turning to Him, our turning from our sin, and our turning to Him. Well, how do you see that here in this text? You're wondering in three ways. If you've got the outline, here are the three points. 
We see this, the need to be turning to him, turning from our sin and turning to him, not once for all, but all the time, all the time in this relationship with, with him, at least in these three ways. One, in the way we see his consternation with his people. I'll explain this as we go. His consternation with his people, that's the first point. The second thing being his intentions for his people. And then thirdly, his affections for his people. And I realized after I made this outline that if you want to try and remember these three points, it's CIA. And that was not intentional, but that's what it kind of like stumbled out to be this, I don't know, Thursday when I came up with this. Consternation, intentions, and affection. All right, so first, his consternation with us. Does that seem strange to you this morning? That we could possibly speak of God's consternation with us, his people. That sounds so Old Testament. It can't, we're, we're a New Testament people. It can't be, can it? Well, well, in Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, Jesus expresses his consternation with his disciples. Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 18 in the context of a conversation he's having with them about what is clean and unclean, uh, that, that whole thing in the, um, the time and period of Israel and the Jewish worship and all, all of that, their, their understanding of what it was and really what it wasn't. And this is what he says to, to his disciples. He said, Mark 7, verse 18, and he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, then are you also without understanding? Now, that doesn't sound so bad until you understand what he really said. The ESV cleans it up a little bit. Are you also without understanding? The NIV puts it this way, a little bit better. Are you so dull? Are you so dull? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, puts it this way. Are you so willfully stupid? This is Jesus speaking to his beloved disciples. It's not that he doesn't love them, but he feels this consternation within his heart for them. So is it possible that the Lord could feel consternation towards his people? Absolutely. In Judges and in Mark and today, absolutely. Um, we have a three-dimensional God, if I could put it that way. Let's not flatten him. We see this consternation in two ways. When we consider it here in Judges, just in Judges, just in Judges 10, um, on the one hand, his great salvation that he's worked for his people on their behalf, and at the same time, coupled with that, their great rebellion. His great salvation coupled with, right upside, their great rebellion. Okay, so the great salvation, what is it that he did? Well, he tells them, he reminds them, he gives them something of a, of a history lesson, verses 11 and 12. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hands? So they were oppressed. They were in need. They cried out. And what does he do? He saves them. He delivers them. He ransoms them. He redeems them. What a great salvation this is. And in case you, you missed it, the narrator is intentional. And giving and, and some symbolism that's here and, and how these nations are listed out. Now, these are real nations, real peoples, real saving that took place here, real history. But you also need to understand it's pointing to something beyond itself because there's some symbolism. It's seven nations listed here. 
Seven, Old and New Testament, oftentimes implies a sense of thoroughness, a sense of completion, the sense of totality. So what God is saying to his people is, remember how I totally, fully, completely delivered you. This was a complete deliverance. Not 99%, thorough, thoroughgoing. Absolutely, I saved you such as his deliverance, okay? But then they, you see their rebellion. How did they respond to this, knowing that, despite all of that? Well, go back to verse six. Now, as I read it, pay attention to the verbs, to the verbs in, in verse six. If you go back one more screen, you can, you, there you go. Uh, verse six here in Judges 10. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and Serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So, wow, I mean, could they, could they have done any, I was going to say more, could they have done any less, depending on how you want to say it, right? A double negative. Could they have done less more? Um, interestingly enough, again, you have a seven. So again, the, this is real idolatry they have given themselves into. But again, seven nations are listed. Again, there's this idea of the symbolism, this not just so God had completely, utterly delivered them, but they have given themselves completely, utterly into dissolution, denying him, turning their backs on him. They are so incredibly opportunistic. Let's find every God we can worship. Oh, but one. Him, the one true God who would actually save them. Which then results in, you see there in verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines. We'll get to that later as the book unfolds. And into the land of the Ammonites, that's right here, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. He sold them, not in the sense of disowning them, not in the sense of breaking his promises, but rather keeping his promises and giving them what they wanted. Giving them exactly what they were wanting. So you see the tension here, the tension that's causing his consternation. On the one hand, his great salvation, and on the other hand, their great rebellion. So uh, this past week in our Inklings Beyond study group, looking at the voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, the third in this, the uh, series in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, one of the questions that we were toying with, playing with, kicking around together in the room was, who's the villain? Who's the bad guy? Who's the enemy in this story? It's not immediately apparent. You know, in the first story, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's pretty obvious. The villain, the enemy, is... Thank you. Soft pitch. I gave you the title. How could you miss it? The witch, the evil queen. She's the villain. She's the enemy. Okay, second book, Prince Caspian. Who's the villain? Who's the bad guy? Who's the enemy? King Miraz, the usurper, the traitor, the tyrant. Okay, get to the third book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Who's the enemy? Who's the villain? Who, what's the source of the opposition? 
This is what we talked about. This is what we discovered together. It's in here. In that story, Lewis, is, and the, through the narrator, is, is helping us to see the enemy comes from within. It becomes very clear of the course of that, that narrative as you see these accounts of the temptations that assail our, our, our heroes, some of the main characters in, in the book, and what that exposes there in their hearts as they struggle and sometimes give in to some of these temptations. The villain, the enemy, is, is within. My fellow Dawn Treaders, that's our story. Our greatest enemy, in many respects, is right in here. Our own fallen, sinful nature. Judges 10 is our story. That's our people. <laughs> this is our story. This, they is us. We are them. Now, I don't know how that lands on you this morning. You're like, I came in here for a little pickup. This is not really doing me... This is the medicine we need, at least from towards the beginning of this message. This is part of the medicine we need to, to be sobered here, to know something of who we are. You know, the vows that, that uh, Jamie and Samantha were just taking a minute ago comes very clear, right? They're sinners in the, in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Um, it, it really, though, when you think about it, the fact that God feels this consternation towards such people as us, if you think about it, ought to at the, it ought to sober you. It ought to encourage you. How? Because it tells you you're on his radar. The fact that something you're doing in response to what he's done for you elicits consternation in his heart means you're on his ra radar. He, you're, you're on the screen. You register to him. You matter to him. You are on his heart. Friends, that's good news. The fact that he is feeling consternation with us at times because of our sin should encourage us. Should encourage us. It's, it's the part of the reality of his calling us into this relationship and therefore all the more reason to turn to him, to turn from our sin and turn to him. All right, that's the first thing, the reality of his consternation. The second thing coming right on that is, is again, part of the reason, part of the, uh, the driving force, the motivation of his consternation are his intentions for us. He made us. He made us for so much more, so much more than we settle for, give ourselves to our trivial pursuits, our selfish, um, short-sighted, inclinations and, and goals and aspirations. He made us, saved us for his kingdom purposes in this world. So much more than what we settle for. We see that here in, in a couple of ways. First, when you, you consider the, the wayward hearts of the people, which again is, is us, the wayward hearts of the people here. You see them again, again, and Will and I, we've been tag teaming through this series. You if you've just been to one, heard one of these messages, you've heard us say something about the cycle of judges. Um, the, the, the people give themselves to idolatry. They suffer misery for it. They cry out. God hears them. He sends a judge. He sends a deliverer. He sends a, a, a redeemer. 
and, and all is well, at least for some period of time. Before then, they you know, cycle. But what we're seeing here now as the book continues, the cycle is like a spiral going down. It's like what you do when you flush the toilet. That's the outline of the book of Judges. Sorry. Um, they're stuck in this cycle. They're drawn... You see this especially in the opening verses, the first uh, nine verses here of Judges 10. They're drawn by the promises, drawn in like, like fish to the lure, uh, drawn in by the, the, the promises to live for, to uh, find meaning and purpose and hope in some something, some other thing, some idol, some lesser God, something in the creation other than the creator. And just like in, in, in the cycles of addiction, it works the same way here, Greater promises, diminishing returns. Greater promises, diminishing returns. You're hooked, you're ensnared, you're entrapped, and you're spiraling further into the pit. And that's what you see here with Israel and what's happening. And, and it's so bad, and it makes sense in a terrifying way, it's so bad. Part of the nature of this enslavement is an inability to see what's happening as it's happening. It's part of the, it's part of the trap. It's, it's why here in, in Judges 10.10, 10, what seems, it sounds really good. On the, on the surface, these words sound so good, and that's the way it oftentimes is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, our kids say, I'm sorry. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken you, our God, and have served the Baals. And that sounds good, but it's pretty clear as you keep reading. The only thing they're sorry for is the consequences and suffering that they're enduring. They're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry they've gotten caught. They're not sorry for the ways that this has grieved the heart of their God. They're not sorry for the significance and the rootedness of... Their, it's all on the surface. It's all about the behavior. They're sorry for what they're enduring. Well, then that collides, that their wayward hearts collides with God's steadfastness. Their fickleness collides with his faithfulness. And so then he, hearing these good words, good words, he responds. He's not impressed. Verse 13... Uh, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You see, he, he, the Lord is not... He is not a clerk standing behind the counter to do an exchange. You give me this, I'll give you that. He is not the, the vending machine over in the corner, put in the coin and get... This, he is not our advisor, he is not our consultant, he is God. He's God, and he's not interested in this transactional relationship that they seem to have in mind. And so, being, not being impressed, he presses in. He's heard such words, he's heard such surfacey sounding rights, right on the surface words, but nothing down. They want relief, they don't want him. That's all they want. They want relief, lift it, but they don't want him. 
Well, the Lord has intentions for us as his people in this relationship with us, and he will not be manipulated. Back to the voyage of the Don Treader. So there is a scene in which uh, Lucy and Cory Aiken, the wizard, are having this conversation with Aslan, and it's there on what's called Cory Aiken's Island. He's this, this wizard, and Lucy has just completed this harrowing task. We'll go into all the details, but this harrowing task of freeing the inhabitants, the natives of this, this island from this spell that they had been under. So now Lucy and Cory Aiken and Aslan are having this conversation, and Aslan has just said, he's about to go. Let me pick up there. Do not look sad, Aslan says. We shall meet soon again. Please, Aslan, said Lucy. What do you call soon? I call all times soon. Whoa, no. Think about that one. I call all times soon, said Aslan, and instantly he was vanished away. Gone, said Corey Aiken. And you and I quite crestfallen. It's always like that. You can't keep him. It's not as if he were a tame lion. If you've ever read any of the books of, through the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that that's a recurring theme in the stories, that Aslan is no tame lion. Well, the true and living God, the Lord, is no tame God. He is no tame God. Again, he is not our advisor. He is not our consultant. He is not our on-demand supplier. He is not some genie that we can just pull out of the closet and rub when things are, are tough and rough. And, and I know most of us here are probably thinking, I know that. I know that. I wonder if we know that. Let's do a thought experiment here for just a minute. I really don't want to do this because it, I, I'm pointing, I have to point the fingers at myself here. But let's run this thought experiment now together. You're praying for something. Now, you, you're probably not saying this in the prayer, but in the back recesses of your mind, this is what you're thinking as you're talking to the Lord in prayer. Uh, I've served you. I've sacrificed for you. I have denied myself in so many ways. I have endured so much for you. I need you to do this. This. And then this doesn't happen. How do you respond? How do you respond? If you respond in bitterness and cynicism and resentment towards the Lord and you walk away from him, here's what that shows. All along, your chief end, your chief desire, the governing factor of your life, your God was that. Not God, not the Lord, that was your God. I'm uncomfortable too. He was a means towards that end. That's all he was. That's all he was, was a means towards that end. And he means so much more for us 
He means so much more for us to be in relationship with him, communion, fellowship with him. That's his intention for us, his people. And he will go to severe means. Will was reading from Hebrews 12 earlier, the discipline that he will bring to bear in our lives out of love that we would not relate to him in that way, but in the way that he intends. And again, this relational dynamic tells us it's all the more reason, all the more reason to turn to him, to turn from our sin and turn to him, which then brings us to the last thing, last thing, not just uh, his consternation with us, which can be real, his intentions for us, which certainly are, but also his affection for us. This, too, is part of the consternation. Where does that come from? His his care, his affection, his his compassion for us as his his people. You may wonder, well, where do you see that here in the text? Well, let's consider a couple things. First, uh, the, the helplessness of the people. The helplessness of the people. So you get down to verse 15. So, you know, you have that first, that surfacey confession, that surfacey pseudo repentance, okay? Regret is really what we should probably call it. Then the Lord, again, he's not impressed, so he presses in. We don't know what the time lapse is here, but then we get to verse 15, and something's changed. Something has changed. A shift has taken place here in the hearts of the people. Verse 15, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, we haven't heard that before. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us. So... They put away, here's something else we haven't heard before. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So now, now they're not just sorry for the suffering, they're sorry for the sin. Now they're not just settling for dealing with behavior, surfacey stuff, the tip of the iceberg. Now they're going below, what's below, down into the roots. They're digging up, not just the little dandelion up at the top, but they're going down and uprooting that sucker, getting to the idols themselves, their false gods, their false loves, their false hopes, and forsaking them, turning from them. Now, what's worth noting is as good and right and needed as that is, That's not the cause for God's mercy. I don't know if you noted this. It's really worth paying attention to this morning. That's not the reason that he then shows his mercy. Let's read verses 15 and 16 again. We read all through through verse 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. You know, it's not, it doesn't say, and he saw how well they repented. He saw their sincerity. He saw their faithfulness. And so he said, that's not what it says. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, his soul became short. He could bear their suffering no more. He suffered because of their suffering. Their misery made him miserable. 
even as it was for turning their back on him. Is that not amazing? And we, we see something of that actually earlier in the chapter. I'm not going to go really much into this, but if you go back into verses 1 through 5, the, these judges that we don't really know a lot about them, they're called oftentimes minor judges, not because they were short or, you know, their, their reigns were quite long, in fact, and apparently they're, they're, the impact that they had was, was significant, but it's just we aren't told that much, so for that reason we call them minor judges. But Tola and Jair, it's, it's interesting to note that the, the, the people needed saving, at that time. It says that in verse 1. Why? There are no invaders mentioned. There are no oppressors mentioned. What did they need saving from? Oh, this sounds like Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Themselves. They needed saving from the mess that we read of in chapter 9 Avimelech, the bramble king, and they're having followed him, given themselves to him, and the chaos and mess that that left, they needed saving from themselves. And that's, it's not just that that's amazing. And he takes that initiative still there. But also, they don't even ask. Do you note that? There's not even a, a panic, save us. There's not, that's not in, even in the text. So he comes, he saves them from themselves, without their even asking. Without their even asking. He's so moved by the misery of his people, his mercy matching that misery. Hear the groaning of our God. Hear the groaning of our God. Again, it's verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. That's the kind of impatience you and I need in our lives. God's impatience with our misery. And that's the kind of impatience you have. Even when it's for your sin. Even when it's for your sin. Such as the depth of his affection for us. That's amazing. Who would make this up? Reminded of, of Hosea, the prophet. A minor prophet, not because he was short, but a minor prophet, shorter book. Uh, in a, some of you may know something of what's happening there uh, in, in the context of Hosea's story. Uh, the, the Lord, this is um, in a really another messy time in Israel's history, is a lot of those. Um, the Lord calls Hosea, as a man of God, a prophet, to marry this woman who is going to prove to be incredible, insanely faithless to him. And not just to marry her, but then after she betrays him, to pursue her, to go after her. Why? Because God hates Hosea? No, because he loves us. Because he wants to give in Hosea an acted out, in space and time, lived parable of his own experience with us, his people. And his affection, his devotion towards us, his, his people, even when we're turning and running the other direction. Listen to these words from Hosea chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Another word for Israel. 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zehoim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Anchor these two things in your mind right now. Your repentance is never going to be enough. But his love will always be. You're cleaning yourself up. You're straightening yourself out. All of it will never be enough. It's always called for, but it will never be enough. His love always will be. And that, my friends is incredibly assuring. Actually, it's a bad word. Incredibly, I'd be like without credit. Astonishing. Beautiful. Affirming. Consoling. That's our peace. That is our security. And then you go, you go on and read in verses 17 and 18 of this chapter, and the people, the leaders of Gilead said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight? He shall be head over us. Who is that really about? Oh, yeah, it's, it's going to prove to be in chapter 11 about this guy named Jephthah. We'll get to him. But who is it? who's really going to fight for his people? Who's really going to be the one to lead us? The greater Jephthah, the greater judge, the greater deliverer, Jesus. Okay, us on the other side of Jesus' coming, on the other side of the cross, how much more reason do we have, you and I, and the people back in Genesis, excuse me, Judges 10, how much more reason do we have on this side of what Jesus has done for us than they did? How much more assurance do we have? How much, more, how much safer is it? Can I put it that way? How much safer is it to fall into his arms, to turn from our folly and our sin and back to him, seeing how much he loves us? You see, his affection in this relationship is, is all the more reason to turn to him. It's all the more reason to turn to him. I was reminded this past week of a, of a term. Uh, maybe some of you have heard it. The intolerable compliment. How many of you might be familiar with that? A mentor of mine years ago used it describing leadership. He said that's, that's what leadership oftentimes is, is the intolerable compliment. Uh, some of you could relate to this. You know, you do f well in some something, and the reward you're given is this greater, harder thing, an intolerable compliment. Yay! I, I was not the, that was not the first time I'd heard that term. Uh, C.S. Lewis didn't just write the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote a, another work called The Problem of Pain, and he uses that very phrase uh, in The Problem of Pain, and, and this is what he says. We are not, metaphorically, but in very truth, a divine work of art, something that God is making and therefore something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. Here again, we come up against what I have called the intolerable compliment. Over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, an artist may take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it is not exactly as he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the work which he loves... 
though in a different fashion, as intensely as a man loves a woman or a mother a child, he will take endless trouble and would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were sentient. One can imagine a sentient picture after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing that it were only a thumbnail sketch, which was its making over was done in a minute. In the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we are not wishing for more love, but less. Do you feel that intolerable compliment coming on? Friends, here's the good news. We have God's heart. We have God's heart. And he wants ours. We have God's heart. And he wants ours. Can we pray? Lord, it is the best and hardest news to discover that we matter to you. That you are concerned for us, that you have compassion for us, that your eye is upon us, your ear is tuned to us, your hand is upon us. We have your heart, and you want ours. Lord, would you help us to, to know this deeply, to live out of this truly? Yes, to hate, of course, to hate the consequences, the suffering for our sin, but to hate it, to hate the sin itself, the crooked nature, the Bentness that's so down deep within us, the way in which every thought, word, and deed that breaks your law by omission and commission, how it grieves you. And we see that as we look to the cross, the necessity of the cross, seeing the grievousness of our sin. Help us not just to be, we are, help us not just to be prone to wander but prone to turn, prone to turn from our sin to you, knowing to whom it is we are turning and the reception that we receive day after day after day. We pray in your name.